So in uh, Chloe's book, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. That's the voice of Tara Hunt, Miss Rogue on Twitter. And the Corey that she's referring to is, of course, Corey Doctorow, one of the writers at Boing Boing, a world-leading thinker around digital rights management and prolific science fiction author, among other things. Oh, my God. You're like listening to G'day World with Cameron Riley on the podcast network. Whatever. In the future, there's no money left over and said the currency is woofy. That word is woofy, W-H-U-F-F-I-E, pronounced like a dog, woof, woof. Uh, according to Wikipedia, Woofie is the ephemeral reputation-based currency of Cory Doctorow's science fiction novel Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. This book describes a post-scarcity economy. All the necessities and most of the luxuries of life are free for the taking. A person's current Woofie is instantly viewable to anyone as everybody has a brain implant giving them an interface with the net. The Wikipedia article suggests that uh, Corey apparently developed this word woofy uh, in high school, and uh, it's not an abbreviation or anything like that. Its uh, etymology is, is kind of uncertain, but it uh, may be related, again, according to Wikipedia, uh, Wikipedia to the exclamation woof that uh, Arsenio Hall, American uh, comedian, talk show host in the the 90s, early 90s, I think, used to use when he was happy with something, he'd say, woof. Anyway, that's what Wikipedia says. Back to Tara Hunt. And it's basically implanted in in people's inner computers. And um, my inner computer can ping your inner computer, and I would get back a score. And a high score means that um, you are trustworthy, you're somebody they want to get to know, you're... Uh, you've probably created something really beautiful to give to the world, you know, like a symphony, I think is an example that uh, Corey uses. And so, uh, you know, you can raise your woofy score by uh, being nice to people and having them add to your woofy points or being notable so people have heard of you um, and also um, being really networked so the more people you know. And uh, when I... When I read this and when I, when I understood the term for what it was, I thought, this isn't the, this isn't the future. And it's, um, uh, although we don't have, you know, computers in our brains yet, <laughs> um, we do ping each other's woofy all the time in online communities, right? So you add me as a friend on Facebook, and if I haven't met you before, or if uh, or if we've maybe only met lightly, I might uh, ping your woofy by, you know, checking out, you know, our, who are our uh, friends in common. I'll go maybe check out your page, maybe I'll Google you, uh, that sort of thing. So that's how we're pinging each other's woofy today. Tara's got a book coming out on April 21st called The Woofy Factor. And it was uh, my great pleasure to chat with her this morning about some of the ideas contained within the book. For those of you who don't know Tara, which would surprise me, I'm pretty sure she's uh, fairly well known by most people who would listen to this show, but for those of you who don't, quick bio on Tara, born in Canada in a <laughs> place called Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which uh, sounds to me like a, uh, a joke city, something that Spike Milligan would have come up with. But she assures me it's a real place. Uh, She moved to San Francisco uh, quite a few years ago now, sort of uh, mid-2000s, was it four years ago, I guess, and uh, got involved with the marketing of a startup called RIA.com, R-I-Y-A, that was doing like uh, visual searching through photos, facial recognition kind of stuff, and uh, made them uh, the buzz of the blogosphere, got them uh, talked about by uh, Michael Arrington on TechCrunch fairly early on. She went on to co-found the Citizen Agency with Chris Messina and Ben Metcalf, which was uh, an internet consultancy built around community-centric marketing. She was uh, very involved in driving the profile of bar camp events, and she writes the very popular blog, horsepigcow.com. I asked Tara where the Miss Rogue uh, title came from. I had read somewhere in her bio online that it had to do with a karaoke bar. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a comic book nerd. Uh, I really loved 
the X-Men and mostly around female superheroes growing up. I really looked up to them. I you know, wanted to be, be them and Rogue was one of those characters. So when I uh, started my own company back in Calgary, I called it Rogue Strategies. Fair. And uh, so the area of the KJ in uh, Toronto, he would introduce me when I would get up on stage as Rogue, and then it evolved to Miss Rogue. <laughs> it's great. In fact, um, some of the photos that I've seen of you, including, I think, the one that uh, was in the book document that you sent me, you, you have a bit of a rogue hairstyle going on. Has that been deliberate? Yeah, yeah. Actually, for a while, yeah, for a while I did that. I mean, currently I'm I'm uh, single toned, but yeah, I did the two tone for many years. Now, I was also um, surprised to learn that you've got uh, a son who's in his mid to late teens. He's uh, yeah, he doesn't he's sixteen. You know, I, I I had this idea that you were like twenty four. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> Keep that idea. I seriously, I seriously did. I had you pegged for, you know, mid-twenties. I know that people in Canada are a bit strange and they might start young uh, in the wilds of Canada, but probably not young enough to be 24 having a 16-year-old son. There's a line in Tara's book that says, market capital flows from having social capital. And it reminded me of something that the very great Doc Searles, one of the authors of the very influential Clue Train Manifesto, said when he was on this show a couple of years ago. And the real jujitsu move that's possible by individuals is around what I call the because effect rather than the with effect. In other words, um, I can make more money because of my blog than with my blog. That's one of the things I've often talked about, that... Yep. She goes, well, how can you make money with a blog? And I'll say, well, how do you make money with your cell phone? It's an expense, but would you do without it? No. Well, it's similar with a blog. I'm not looking to make money with the blog, but I give a lot more power and reach because of the blog. And as you do with the podcast, right? I mean, you have much more power and, and influence in the world because of this podcast than you had without it. Yes, that's right. I have power. <laughs> Kneel down before me, you puny humans. Send all of your money to my PayPal account. <laughs> but I get the general idea. You know, the more social capital you have, as uh, Tara said, the more market capital you have. And that's true whether you're an individual or a business. So I asked Tara if there were if that was the main reason that people got involved in building up their woofy, is it so they can make money out of it, or are there other motivations? Well, I mean, I think that uh, you know, we all want to create opportunities. We all want to make friends. It is better access to resources. It makes us safer. Uh, makes us happier. <laughs> um, so there's very different motivations. But I think at base, and some people would argue with me, but I think at base, that's why we we participate positively in uh, online communities as well as offline communities is is so that we have we grow a network of people that we can uh, count on and uh, antisocial behavior in general uh, and which a lot of companies actually engage in thinking that this is marketing uh, antisocial behavior uh, lessens our ability to um, to grow and prosper within these within um, communities and uh, nobody wants that I don't think anybody really wants that and I really love the idea of the because of economy I think that was actually came from a conversation that uh, Doc had with uh, with Chris Messina uh, who was my a former business partner at Citizen Agency, uh, and they talked, of the, talked about the because of economy, and that's really uh, how market capital, how, how finance, how finance money is, is, uh, is connected to Wolfie, for sure. All roads lead back to Doc, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. He's, yeah, he's definitely a thought leader, and uh, I do talk about him um, uh, as one of my early influences in this from from this from this book and and when I started in marketing ten years ago um, I was working um, in communications at an oil and gas company and then 
um, just something just didn't seem right about our approach. It just didn't seem to be solid um, with the marketing. And then moved over to, I was moving over to an, an ad agency and um, searching around the net one day and came across a crew training manifesto. And it just, it changed my world because it, it, taught, it just spoke right to uh, exactly what was bothering me about, about marketing. Um, and and you know one of the things that constantly uh, I, I wonder about is the fact that Clue Train website and book came out about a decade ago now, as you say, about ten years ago, and yet the the principles contained within it that have had you know so much acceptance, uh, particularly in online communities, uh, still seem to be very very slow at making their way into the worlds of marketing and public relations and advertising. In your uh, research and your experience, do you think that's changing? Are those principles starting to become uh, more adopted? Uh, uh, yes, there's, there are certainly more and more people that understand those basic principles and are pushing that. Uh, the we're still dealing with a lot of issues, though, around um, people wanting. Uh, and this is kind of human nature. People wanting sort of quick fixes, um, the answers, something handed to them in a box, and it's done. Um, the inability to see that time, if you invest a little bit more time and energy into these relationships, that long term, you're going to do better. Because people just want these short-term bursts. So we see this on Twitter, right, all the time. Oh, here's a new app. I can't even remember the name of it. I don't even want to remember the name of it. Here's a new app. You can grow your Twitter followers by 50,000 in, like, two weeks. For some reason, people put more stock in something like that than they do in um, a slow, long-term growth of, of, of a quality base of followers, right? It's still really focused on the quantity. Um, and that's where our success stories keep coming out, right? You have, you pick up a uh, Business Week or you pick up a, a, a New York Times and the headlines are all about these big, big numbers. Um, and we don't tell the stories often enough about how a small number of really quality uh, interactions led to um, just as great of a success, right? Um it's just, unfortunately, this human nature focus. And I'm whole, I think, though, you know, with the, with the Wolfie Factor, with the Clue Train before, and a whole bunch of amazing books uh, in between uh, that have, you know, anything by Clay Shirky, um, David Weinberg of Small Pieces, Lisa Joined, all these really amazing um, thought leaders in between that have started to get into the public consciousness and even, you know, I, I joined into it uh, two, two months ago now. And uh, even in this big, huge company that is like, you know, the core is accounting software, um, seemingly a really uh, old, you know, kind of stodgy industry, I guess, to be in. Uh, there are huge numbers of people that really get it within this company and are really, and those that don't are really trying to get it. I think we're now because of the infiltration of the internet and all of the people that are on there talking, uh, and, and the, the, the sheer, uh, power of the word of mouth that it spreads. Companies are like, okay, well, we want the quick, we want the quick, you know, in a box, big numbers. But when we try that, we see how, that is actually damaging to our brand. So we have to start thinking in this new way. And they're slowly training our brains, I guess, to get to that point um, where the philosophy, the, the core uh, ideology behind Clue Train is starting to stick. Let me let me talk to you about some examples and uh, get your thoughts on them. There, I was reading just last night about an Australian ad agency that a couple of months ago pulled one of these YouTube stunts where they um, 
hired an actress and she shot a YouTube video in a rented house with a crew and a stylist, but made it look like she was just uh, some pretty girl. And there's a story about how she saw this handsome man on a train and he left his jacket behind and she wanted to get this jacket back to him. And it made uh, all the mainstream media press here and uh, turned out to be a, a complete stunt. The, the ad agency's client was uh, the company that manufactured the jacket. And, uh, and then it kind of blew up uh, in their faces and they sort of justified it by saying, hey, we drove huge amounts of traffic to the, uh, our client's website as a result. I'm just going to stop the chat with uh, Tara here for a second and talk a little bit about this incident. I had completely missed this. It happened back in January, apparently. And my attention's been otherwhere, like other places, worrying about my own uh, backyard. But apparently this was something that uh, was done for the client Witchery. They're a clothing retailer, fashion brand in Australia. The agency was Naked Communications in Sydney. And as I explained, they did a fake YouTube clip. Um, and here's the thing, like it is it should be obvious to anybody who knows anything about social media that these people at Naked Communications do not get it and that what they did was wrong, completely wrong on every level. And what is even more uh, just (laughs) either appalling or amusing, depending on uh, how you look at these things, is that the uh, people at Naked Communications are justifying it. There's uh, a number of posts on uh, the Mumbrella blog and places like that where they're saying... Well, it drove lots of traffic uh, through to the site. They've done surveys that says that people have uh, heard of the campaign. Uh, they'd seen the video. They were aware of it. And uh, Naked's chief executive, Matt Baxter, told Mumbrella, reading here, the results were bloody good. He added, at the end of the day, we're opening a store and want people to go there. And uh, he says, social media is about starting conversations. So it was as good for us that there were skeptics as there were people who were positive. That's what starts conversations and gets people talking. We knew that what we were doing was probably going to polarize people, but we wanted to make sure we got more positive than negative, which is what we achieved. Bullshit, Matt Baxter, you're an idiot. And, um, you know, I hope one of the results of this is that the name of Naked Communications is uh, poisoned and toxified in the blogosphere by people talking about what a bunch of douches you are and how you don't understand the first thing about social media and definitely not woofy. Anyone who knows anything about this space knows that you guys screwed up. You obviously don't have a clue about social media and when you think you can go out there and just bullshit to people, not only just in the YouTube ad but then spin what happened as a result of your initial mistake, you've screwed up on two levels And uh, as far as I'm concerned, you guys are absolutely clueless. And if I had a client that was thinking about working with you, I would uh, do my utmost to dissuade them from going near you with a 40-foot pole. Let's see what Tara had to say. Now, um, I I went and Googled the name of the agency last night, hoping that I would see that their Google rank had been completely toxified as a result of this. Uh, and, And unfortunately, it hadn't. Um, but I, I, I plan to do something about that. But uh, these sorts of <laughs> these sorts of stunts, where companies are using social media in a in a purely manipulative, uh, exploitative way, uh, do you think that's something that we're going to continue to see? And is it justified in any way, shape, or form from your uh, experience? Uh, yeah, so we're going to continue to see it for a while, unfortunately, but I think it's going to start uh, falling off. I don't know. I, maybe I maybe I am uh, truly, um, uh, as I've been called before, a digital utopian, and I'm <laughs> too naive about this. Uh, maybe it comes from living in San Francisco for too long now, <laughs> uh, but I really do believe that we're uh, moving in a direction where um, the stories, like you just told, um, are going to be starting, you know, starting to be like the warnings against rather than the positive stories that people are telling. Um, because people are speaking out. Uh, I've been to conferences where somebody tells a similar story. Look at all the traffic we drove. And people in the audience, like, get up and yell at them. Uh, so, um, yeah, we're going to see it for a while because that's kind of how they've been thinking for a long time. Uh, but... 
you know, going going forward, I think I'm hoping, um, and I really do believe that we're going to see more and more really positive stories coming out that are going to be told over and over again of companies that are doing things openly and transparently and honestly and working with their community and spending that time and getting that rush. And this is what I hear from, you know, what I used to hear from clients all the time and what I hear in the stories from people that are using the tools correctly and building relationships is they get this rush, right, of like, oh, my God, I'm making connections and this feels great and I know exactly where my company stands. And I know exactly what people think, and I'm getting smarter because of it, and I'm building better products, and people are loving me, and they're spreading word of mouth, and now we're getting uh, getting to the point where our business is, is hugely successful. So companies like Zappos, for instance, right? These great stories of, of companies that actually take the time and, and, and see amazing results. And I'm, um, I'm just, you know that year that uh, in five years that's going to be the dominant um, the dominant story in the landscape whereas previously the dominant story was well look at how many people we drove to the website it's going to be more qualitative than it is quantitative well, let's let's again, let's hope. Digital <laughs> <laughs> let's hope that you're right. Um, there, uh, one of the things that I hear from people in marketing and PR uh, when we start talking about social media is a concern that they have that if they start participating in social media and Twitter and things like that, that they're going to get uh, a lot of people just bad mouthing them for the sake of bad mouthing them, and they'll they'll just get this. Uh, rush of uh, negative communication purely for the sake that they're a big target. And one of the things that I often try to understand, uh, explain to them is, you know, anyone who's spent any amount of uh, serious time uh, in online communities realizes that the only currency that they have is their reputation. And that if you blow that by just acting like a dickhead all the time, you quickly get ring fenced and marginalised as a troll, and uh, your your reputation suffers. That everyone knows that you're a troll, and so therefore, in my experience, it doesn't tend to happen a lot. Most people I see uh, in uh, online communities tend to deal with each other fairly respectfully, uh, fairly honestly, and anyone who gets out of line is usually told to, you know, calm down and uh, settle down. Has that been your experience as well, or, or do I live in uh, closed little communities where people are mostly nice to each other? Yeah, that's been my experience as well. And um, the bashing happens for until there is a human being behind uh, the arrows that are in front of the arrows that you're throwing. You can throw arrows at the brand because it's like nameless, faceless, evil entity, whatever. But as soon as a human being steps into those shoes, you you're the you're the artist for like for throwing things at it at that person, right? Yep. So people calm down. This happens. I've seen this time and time again, where somebody's like, "I hate," um, I don't know, even me earlier. I hate AT and T. It sucks. You know, like what the hell? It dropped calls on me, right? That sort of thing. Somebody from AT and T come would come along on Twitter. And be like, oh, you know, I'm sorry that your calls are dropped. You want to, you know, explain a little more? I'm going to calm down instantly, and I'm going to like eventually turn around, probably to be AT and T's biggest fan. You know, like, wow, they're listening to me, and that's a human being talking to me now, and um, I'm feeling more connected to that person, and therefore, oh, you know, less angry about my experience, and then. Then I'll be willing to tell the story to however well, you know, on Twitter, 25,000 people <laughs> um, saying, let's look at what ATT did and how they're turning around and how awesome this is, right? Now, this is a fictional story. I haven't started complaining about them. <laughs> but, you know, like that's what happens all the time. If you're engaged on a real human level, people stop throwing stones your way, right? And, uh, yeah, it's been consistent. 
So should uh, these companies only be engaging with people that have 25,000 followers? So how does it work for them if they're uh, being nice to somebody who's only got five followers? I, I saw, I think the last Twittersphere report, state of the Twittersphere report said that the average person on Twitter has something like 20 followers, less than 100 followers. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think it should matter how many followers a person has. They, you know, whether they have followers on Twitter or, you know, they... And the really angry customers are amazing bullhorns, <laughs> and um, really happy customers are amazing bullhorns in the positive sense, right? So um, even if you don't have twenty five thousand followers, if you have five followers, um, and something amazing happens, and you tell those five followers, and then you go out, get offline, and you tell your family and your friends and your ultra bears of the group, and you tell like this stuff, this good word, good words and bad words follow. Um, uh, they 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 tend to spread out all the time through networks of people, and these stories come around. It doesn't matter if you're 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 uh, what's been called before um, an influencer or um, just a you know person going about their own business. Uh, your um, your voice matters now more than ever. And uh, I think what's really what's really cool is um, like I watch the team at, at my company at Intuit. Uh, they don't look at who has whatever number of followers. They just respond to every um, complaint and people being upset. <laughs> Especially right, I mean, TurboTax is one of the properties, and you can imagine tax season like really sucks for people, right? Yeah. And you're going to blame uh, TurboTax. And I watch the TurboTax people in amazement at, you know, just engaging with everybody. Like, what can we do to help? Where are you stuck? Give us your feedback. Like, getting them on, on to email or whatever and just being really amazing at, um, at taking care of everybody despite, like, they could have one follower and they don't care. They want to make sure that they're helping that individual. Yeah, well, I think that's that's what we're seeing more and more companies do instead of just like, oh, you know, what's you know, can we get on TechCrunch? Like that's that's an old school way of thinking. Yeah, one of the things I try and explain to clients is <clears throat> if I jump into uh, you know one of the Twitter search tools and I do a search for you know their product or their brand. Uh, it's going to bring up results from people that have no followers as much as it's going to bring up results from people that have 500,000 followers, and it's going to show them to me equally. And, yep. and you know, and uh, somebody that, uh, ha- you know, like yourself that has 25,000 followers, if you do a search for a product and you find something that somebody says that's negative and you retweet that, it goes out to your 25,000 followers, and I'm sure a lot of those are journalists uh, it, it, with, literally within you know minutes or hours, a piece of bad news can go from one person with no followers mentioning it on Twitter to it uh, you know reaching millions of people very quickly. Um, so there, you know, yeah. every every person's important. Yeah, I do believe that's how the Motrin Moms thing started. It was just with like somebody being upset by the ad and it wasn't like a somebody who had you know 20,000 followers it was somebody who had like 500 followers you know which and ad which ad was, was that Tara? and then it, it was like this Motrin moms they had this and I didn't really pay attention that day but I remember seeing it trending everywhere um and the ad was like they had uh, a mom with a baby carrier and that her back was sore or something and that she had to take Motrin because the baby made her back sore, I think. Uh, and and, and uh, I don't know the story um, intimately enough, but I have heard it retold as far as the way that that was spread like wildfire within hours of the launch of the ad. And within a day, they pulled the ad and apologized wow. to everybody. And I don't know how many thousands of dollars went into creating that ad, and it was supposed to be all over the place. You know, it was a new big campaign, and they had to pull it, like, within 24 hours. And, and it, was, it all came from, like, not a, not a mega influential tweeter. 
it came from, you know, a mom that thought that was offensive. And and she had a few other moms that thought it was offensive. They retweeted it, and then the retweeting stream just kept going and going and going. It was pretty, it was, I, I remember sitting on Twitter that day going, what is this Motrin thing? Because everybody was talking about it. So pretty powerful stuff. And a really good example of, of uh, you know, even uh, everybody's being influenced now. Everybody. Yeah, that's right. It's not just the superstars. It's everybody, as you say. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about the, the key principles that you put down in the book. Um, you mentioned the term bullhorn before. You've got this phrase, turn the bullhorn around. What, what does that mean? Well, turn the bullhorn around is, you know, the traditional marketing is all about you know, yelling as loud as you could to reach as many people as you could, right? Despite uh, who they are, right? They are the famous quote that uh, 50% of marketing works. You just don't know which 50, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, taking that, stopping, talking, and just turning it around and start listening Start listening to feedback, having those, you know, two-way conversations. And I start with listening. I start with like understanding um, what people need and want, and what they're saying, and responding to that. Um, so that's that's what that is about. Turn the bullhorn around to become, you know, a beacon for constant feedback. That sounds. Uh, I mean, that that makes sense to to people like us that have been in these online communities for a long time because we want to be listened to. But I can imagine a marketing director or CEO of a company saying, "Well, that's all very nice and touchy feely, but uh, how, how does that drive revenue?" Yeah. Well, uh, what it, what it, what the bullhorn does is it actually offends uh, enough. If it offends enough people. You're going to have, uh, well, a wolfy deficit and start to <laughs> decline your revenue and in revenue. And um, so, uh, you know, I think the the example I use in that section of the book is Dell, and um, around the Dell Health stuff that uh, that occurred in, I think, back in 2005 with Jeff Jarvis mm-hmm. saying like. I've had this awful experience and all these people gathering around him and Dad was nowhere to be found in the conversation and kept marketing their stuff the same way, like pushing it up, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and even probably millions of dollars on their their um, advertising and people were getting more and more offended and they would go and find Dow ads and they would, they would find ways to disrupt them uh, until they finally stopped and listened and created... Uh, a blog, and then Dell Ideas to learn, um, which were both mediums for listening and not for broadcasting anymore. And now Dell is uh, the sweetheart of many examples, as well as uh, they're, they're creating better computers, better uh, their sales have gone up, they're competitive again. You know, the word of mouth is, you know, uh, I think the, when I talked to Lionel Menchaca, who was behind the uh, direct to Dell blog, he was like, yeah, so we used to have like 82% negative feedback online, and now we have like 22% negative feedback, and everything else is positive or neutral. So um, huge turnaround on that. And when people are reading that stuff, as we know, uh, and making a decision on what kind of computer to buy, if you're seeing 80% negative feedback, you're not going to buy it all. If you're seeing 80% positive feedback, or at least neutral, then you'll most likely buy that Dell. So that's, you know, an example, and, and a definitely example where it affected their bottom line. Do you think companies are only willing to listen, though, if they have a major negative event? I, I often get the feeling that a lot of marketing people believe their own bullshit. I, I remember being in a meeting with some... Um, <laughs> the sort of senior marketing honchos of one of Australia's biggest banks a couple of years ago and they were they wanted to start a podcast and they brought me in or their agency brought me in to talk about it. And um, they came up with this idea that was just the most horrible, horrible idea I'd ever heard of. And I told them that uh, uh, late in the meeting when they finally asked my opinion. 
And they said, well, what do you think we should do then, smartass? And I said, well, I, I think we should do a show called Why People Hate Banks. And um, uh-huh. we'll go out and we'll interview people about why they hate you. And then I can take those questions back into your senior management and you can respond to those questions. And they said, oh, but we have one of the most loved brands in the country. You know, we completely score very high in brand loyalty surveys and we have very, very loved and admired brand. I said, okay, well, let's stop the meeting. We'll walk down, we'll leave the boardroom. We'll walk downstairs into the street outside. We'll stop the first 20 people who walk past at random and say, what do you think of banks? Or what do you think of this bank? And let's just see what they say. Yeah. And they were like, no, no, we don't need to do that. I mean, let's look, get crazy here. Do you, uh, <laughs> you know, I kind of think that they live in a bit of a echo chamber uh, where they just believe their own bullshit. And it's not until they have a Jeff Jarvis come along and smack them around that they start to rethink, uh, you know, their strategies around this kind of stuff. Yeah, I think... You know, I think you're you're absolutely right, and I see this all the time. Like, I don't know, surveys, customer surveys, and um, employee surveys, and all sorts of surveys where the you know companies score really high, and then you like look at what Fortune magazine, like the most beloved companies or the most beloved brands out there, and I look at like the top list, and I'm like, really, really? Because I'm on Twitter and I read blogs. And I see photos on Flickr where people are, like, having a huge hate on for these top-loved brands. Where are they getting this list from? Where, what, what is their metrics? Obviously, they're not looking at social media. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I agree with you that there's definitely a big disconnect between reality and um in these these surveys that people um, are doing, uh, and I think your idea for the rank is absolutely brilliant, and would love to see something like that executed on. Because I think it would really, you know, be that wake up call that would help them that turn the bullhorn around, right, and start listening. Because they'd be like, wait, wait a minute, this is this is a different story from what our survey told me over here by this expensive you know, $300,000 consulting team. Or the ad agent. companies pay a lot of money to get get exactly what they want to hear. Yeah, yeah, the the, the ad agency or the PR agency that, uh, you know, makes millions of dollars out of us making our ads goes out and asks people if they like us and they say they do, so they must be doing a good job and they keep the contract. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So that's, the, the rest of your, uh, your, your principles here, um, becoming part of the community that you serve, again, sounds very uh, San Francisco, hippie, you know, hug a tree kind of stuff. Uh, how does that work in uh, practice for businesses? Yeah, well, uh, there's lots of great examples of companies that are doing this, uh, this well um, and seeing a lot of success from it. But, you know, the practice is basically... Um, you know, being part of, uh, and it's easy to be part in, costs basically nothing to be part of, of these online communities. And see what really people, so it, you're taking like the principles of listening, you're going in and you're participating, and now you're not only listening, but you're figuring out exactly what it is about uh, everything that's out there that people love, that really makes them tick. And you start to enjoy it yourself. You actually, you know, like the separation between business and personal or like business experience and personal experience is so weird to me. It's just bizarro. Right? You start to think about like, I'm not only like at a company and selling stuff, but I'm also a customer in, you know, in real life every day. I buy stuff. I have decisions that I make. I put my attention to certain things because they're worth my time, so why not, in your business, think like a customer? And how do you think like a customer? Well, become, you know, just put yourself in every day in that position. Be a customer. And this is, you know, far beyond going like, oh, I'm going to go use Facebook for a week and then report back my results, right? This is, this is, being part of it and experiencing it and taking your business hat off and putting a customer 
hat on and just really living the life and figuring out exactly, okay, oh, I'm feeling something here. Oh, well, maybe I should take note of that and put that back into what we're producing, what we're doing. It reminds me of that famous leaked email from Bill Gates a few years ago where he went online to try and buy one of the uh, Microsoft Movie Maker products, I think, <laughs> off their own website and uh, found out what a completely abysmal experience it was trying to buy a Microsoft product online. And he, <laughs> he uh, detailed step-by-step step what a frustrating and uh, user-unfriendly experience it was. But a great example, a, yeah, C- a, more, a CEO yeah, getting out there and actually example. trying to buy, buy the company's product, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, like I would love to see more um, CEOs do that. It's just like uh, if we go out of the business context and into the, you know, maybe local government context. Uh, how So transit systems, right? How many government officials take uh, transit every day? Very few of them, right? But they're making decisions on the budgets and the infrastructure and the where routes are going, and they're not taking the transit themselves. Driving around in chauffeured vehicles. And it's really obvious. Like, <laughs> pardon me. Sorry, what did you say? I said, yeah, they're driving around in chauffeured vehicles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's so, and that's bizarre to me that the people that don't even use it are making the decisions on where that system is going. And we see this every day. We see this, like, no matter what industry, um, it is. and, you know, we hear about, you know, eating your own dog food. Well, that's one level, but then, you know, use your competitors' products, too. I love it when people talk shit about their competitors' products, but they've never actually used them. Mm-hmm. They've never actually, like, experienced them and see what they could do, right? But it's always been so crucial to me, and really, duh, right? But it's doesn't come out in practice. You talk about uh, in the book uh, the, the sort of purple cow effect, um, uh, creating amazing experiences for your customers. That, that always seems to me to be I'm very rare when I come across a product that just blows my mind and I want to rave about it to anyone and everyone. But, I mean, when it does happen, you know, and, and some of the examples that you uh, talk about, uh, the Moleskina, Everyone I know with a Moleskina raves about their Moleskina. It's 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 one of the most yeah. hyped and justifiably hyped uh, simple little products that uh, I've ever spent money. Exactly, and you know other things like the iPhone. Everyone I know that has an iPhone usually just talks about it nonstop. They want to lick it. But how can how can um, how can social media help companies? Pro- Juice uh, amazing products and experiences. Yeah, so um, in the book, I, I give some you know basic guidelines like pay attention to the details, um, look at what people love, uh, and and go beyond that. You know, uh, in the experience that you're creating, um, uh, make something connect people uh, through your experience. Find a way to like help people spread uh, goodness around the world. Um, and Apple has been really spectacular at it because they really focus on designing just the right customer experience. I find more like so many companies don't they put so much emphasis in engineering and not enough in- emphasis on uh, design and experience. Right, and the companies that put that emphasis on design and experience, whether it's Apple or um, uh, oh, that uh, Pixar Studios, which is Apple, um, effectively. Yeah, now it's Apple, but now it's, I mean that's yeah, <laughs> it's, exactly it's, it's Disney, but it was uh, but Jobs. So you've got you've got Steve yeah. Jobs, Steve Jobs, and Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. Why, why is it why, yeah, why yeah. is it only Steve Jobs? Just, just, just hire Steve Jobs. No, um, but the, I mean, there's a lot of people that create amazing experiences. Like the, uh, I'm forgetting his name. The guy that did the Jawbone. Um, um, he is. Uh, he's spoken at TED a couple times. I think his TED talks are up online about the creating, you know, through design, through the interface, creating these amazing experiences. And then I think they just put a TED talk online. 
by a guy who actually took a newspaper that was dying and turned it around by making the newspaper itself an experience. I now, saw that one. That's that's. that's oh yeah, I saw that video the other night. That's fantastic, isn't it? Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. And these are the play- these are the these are the companies that won't die when people make cutbacks, right? These are the companies that will flourish because no matter what, like we crave these experiences. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, I, I say it wrong. Moleskine, it's Moleskina. <laughs> um, uh, but anyways, I, I have mine here, and I talk about it um, in the book as well. And it's. It's it's a notebook, but it's not just a notebook, and um, yeah, like I, I love this notebook, and it's irrational, but totally like this those little things <laughs> about I, this book. I tell you the thing that always amuses the hell out of me with when people get a Moleskine or when they're using them is not the discussion about the notepad itself; it's the discussion about the right pen to use with it that goes along with it. Every Moleskina community, people are talking about pens, like obsessively. No other notebook that you ever have do you give a shit what the pen is. Moleskinas, all of a sudden, it becomes an obsession. People test out 500 different kinds of pen. And, you know, I I became addicted after the Moleskina to these... uh, uh, Fisher space pens, and I ended up, you know, I, with a half a dozen Fisher space pens because I like the way they wrote on the Moleskina. It's like one obsession, and it's the same with the iPhone, right? It, it, when you get an iPhone, all of a sudden, then you got to pick the right case for your iPhone. So obsession one leads yeah. to, you know, obsession yeah. two, and they flow together. Um, talking about social media and customer experiences makes me think of that great Tim O'Reilly quote where he tells companies that they need to leverage the collective intelligence of their audience and when I speak to clients about that here in Australia I usually find this they get this horrified look on their face marketing and PR folks like oh my god talk to our customers like we we tell our customers (laughs) what they want what the hell would if we ask our customers what they want they might like tell us (laughs) it's like this absolutely (laughs) horrifying concept um you know, do you have any good examples of companies that that have done that well? And uh, I mean, you mentioned Dell before, but other companies that have done that well and uh, benefited from listening to their audience. Um. Uh, yeah. Well, um, I, I would say that. Uh, um, so this one's a tricky one. It's not just listening to your audience, right? It's it's being able to rock what part of what you're hearing mm-hmm. um, works. And I talk about this in my feedback se- section, right? Because receiving feedback can be a flood of blah. And I think it's in Kathy Sierra, who is brilliant, if you haven't read her stuff, uh, talks about this. It's like, if, you, if you're looking for, you know, getting the collective interest uh, integrated into what you're doing, you're going to end up with something that is blah. Like kind of gray and muddy versus exciting, um, and an example I like to use is Koi Vim. Uh, he's the designer behind the New York Times website, and he was really brilliant at uh, basically taking all the feedback from all the New York Times online readers, and then um, integrating basically the bits that were really important, collectively important but also ignoring the bits that were um, collectively uh, going to make the site unexciting and, and, and rather um, boring. And uh, it takes, I think it takes uh, a special skill and learning over and over again what uh, really makes people tick. And it's going back, so it's, it's not just like, oh, hey, we're just going to is the collective um, opinion of our of our uh, customers. It's also being able to uh, be a bit of a, a thought leader. So there's, there's ideas coming from both sides. I'm all for collaborative uh, innovation with your customers, but you have to also um, uh, do this within certain uh, constraints that is going to 
still surprising delight. Um, I don't think that is totally dead. You know what I mean? Yeah, okay. I, look, I totally agree. There's, there's always got to be somebody who can... Uh, I mean, the iPhone, if you'd asked people five years ago for their perfect phone, I don't think uh, many people might have been able to conceive of the iPhone, but because it's, right. you know, it, it was given to us by aliens from the future as a, as a blessing to the human mm-hmm. race. Um, wasn't invented by yeah. humans. Well, and it's like, yeah, well, it, it, I think it was Henry Ford who said, uh, if, um, if I would ask people what, what they wanted um, when I was inventing the car, the automobile, they would have asked for a faster horse. <laughs> exactly. You know, like, so, um, yeah, you have to be careful on that. And it's not saying that collectively people are dumb or there's not wisdom in crowds. But definitely um, uh, that you also have to have a certain amount of experience and leadership. And that's where you, the community you serve also comes into play, right? When you understand what makes a good experience and why people are enjoying something, and you get smarter at being able to filter out the bad ideas and the good. All right, Tara Hunt, Miss Rogue, thank you for chatting with us. The Woofy Factor, it comes out this month, is that right? Is it out yet? Yeah, April 21st. Wow. I'm freaking out. <laughs> and it's your first book, right? Yes, it is. Congratulations. And uh, the best website for the book, woofyfactor.com? Yeah, uh, let me just double check. It's com actually. Oh, I'll go register Woofy Factor then and I'll um, skive off all your traffic for people who don't put the the there. Um, and yeah. all, people, somebody already did. That was the problem. Oh, damn. How yeah. rude. Yeah, and he was supposed to change it over uh, and he hasn't yet. That's, that's a whole other story. Someone being helpful that ended up not being so helpful. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Miss Rogue on Twitter, uh, horsepigcow.com. Did I get that right? Yeah. Horsepigcow. Yep. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've wanted to, uh, you know, have you on the show for years, and um, it's really great to finally get a chance oh, to chat to you. Congratulations uh, on the book. I, I'm sure it'll do really well. Thank you so much, Cameron, and thanks for having me and for thinking of me.